Well, g'day and welcome to the detour. A little bit of a different episode tonight because uh, our normal uh, host, my sidekick Dan Jones, is uh, is crook. He's uh, he's had to isolate, do the COVID test. He's coughing and spluttering. Uh, hopefully, he hasn't got the dreaded uh, COVID nineteen, but he but he isn't well, <laughs> and. Uh, he can just push buttons. So uh, uh, he's pushing buttons. He's been pushing my buttons for years. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, he bounces back for, for, for tomorrow's uh, D2 edition. So with me, I've got uh, Scotty McGrory, Olympic gold medalist, one of our greatest ever six-day um, stars, uh, finished second in the Bay Classic. I mean, he's got – they're right up there. They, 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 <laughs> I want a couple. Uh, I want a couple. <laughs> Did win a couple. Yeah. <laughs> um, and has now become uh, he's one of the really good, famous sports directors or race directors around. But he's also uh, become a, a, one of our leading television commentators and doing the Olympics with uh, Phil Liggett. So, uh, Scotty, how are you, mate? I'm good, mate. I'm good now for our international um, viewers and listeners, John. Do you, do you think they all know what crook means? Because that's such an Aussie term, isn't it? Dan's crook. It is. Yes, yes. They probably think he's a gangster, and they'll be exactly. right with that too. <laughs> well, <laughs> Crook is sick. sick. Yes, he's... yes. But uh, yeah, I think uh, most of our uh, overseas listeners have gotten onto most of the Aussie slang o- over the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and we've got uh, uh, Whitey about to join us, and here he is. He was going to come in at eight o'clock. Uh, Matty White, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, good. Long, uh, long transfer, two-hour bus transfer to the start. We just, uh, we're here now, ready to go. Ah, oh, fantastic! So, so you love well, a long well, transfer, mate, <laughs> in the morning before a stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least, we, at least we got a shorter one. We only got an hour after the finish, so quality no, time talk- in the bus, that's for sure. Just talking about uh, Dan Jones being crook and uh, um, or sick, as uh, Scotty pointed out, for, for the uh, international listeners. But uh, you've got a, 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 a sick one in, in your team as well. Cam Meyer has uh, been struggling for the last couple of days. How's he going? Yeah, good. He's uh, he's going to attempt to start uh, today. Uh, so he's uh, been sick for two days now, and uh, we're hoping – Yesterday was the worst of it, but um, he uh, wasn't 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 super overnight. And uh, the doctors giving him the all okay to start today's stage, but uh, we're gonna it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be touch and go if he's gonna be able to get through the stage. I think depending on how uh, quick this breakaway goes, because uh, it's not an easy one to get through uh, ill. But uh, hopefully we can get him through today. Yesterday was an easier one for, to get him through. That's why he was if people were. Watching television, saw him a lot on the back of the bunch yesterday. We didn't have a role for him, and uh, he actually could do a couple of bottle runs, but that's about it. We just wanted to keep him out of uh, out of all the stress yesterday, uh, and hopefully got a bit of recovery. Wasn't involved in that messy final, and uh, if he can get through today, we've got another sprint stage tomorrow. So let's uh, fingers crossed. Um, talking about uh, yesterday's stage, uh, how, how did uh, it pan out for the boys? I, mean, I knew you had no real challenges other than just staying out of trouble, and here the boys doing a good job staying out of trouble. That good photo there, good on your Dan, even though he's not with us, he's still pushing those buttons. Good on you, mate. Um, but that last 20k was really you 
you told us that was the big challenge. The last 3K was really dangerous with great furniture. And it uh, obviously was because it's taken three uh, bike riders down and two of them out of the bike race. How did the boys all handle that? Good. Like we we had to we had to or in in modern cycling, our guys uh, were holding a holding uh, position, 110 kilometres from the finish. After 70k, we had the right hand side of the road with uh, two or three of our guys, and uh, they had to um, they had to uh, hold that position as long as they could, and they did a really good job. Uh, sorry, the boots open in the car. I'm sitting right at the start area. If you hear the music behind us. Um, uh, we're right, mate. <laughs> the, uh, Atmosphere. The, uh, the boys boys did a really good job with uh, Chris Jules Jensen, especially in Callum Scottson, holding that right side of the road there. And then uh, in the final, it got as as you saw there, it got really really messy. And uh, Michael uh, Michael Hepburn did a, a stellar job guiding Simon through the uh, through the traffic there and getting him to the line uh, safe and sound. Hey, um, Waddy, you mentioned um, Heppy there. Uh, in the coverage we saw after the finish, Heppy rode past Caleb Bjorn and, you know, gave him a, you know, a fist pump. Um, there is still such a, a great camaraderie between Australians, regardless of what team they ride for. And, of course, Caleb was with you only a couple of years ago. But uh, it's great to see, isn't it? When, when Aussies do well, and Aussies abroad, you know, when they're out of Australia and they're racing over there, everyone just seems to really understand and appreciate and respect each other's performances. Oh, 100%. We, uh, we all know we've, you know, coming from Australia, in, in whatever sport you're doing that's not uh, one of the locally, locally based ones, uh, we, we all respect the sacrifices and effort that, we, that we've all made to get uh, whatever you've done in your career. And uh, there is a very, very big mutual respect. And I think, Scotty, it's, it's been around for, for a long time. I think even in, even in our area of racing, I think, we, uh, we all had a lot of respect for each other, even the different pathways we took to turn professional and to do whatever we did on the track or the road. Uh, we all appreciated and had that respect uh, of what it took to get uh, to this level uh, in, in, in international cycling. One of the differences, um, Whitey, between our era and now is that we actually had probably a lot more time in stages to chat, catch up and, you know, really just communicate. These days... Mate, they're flat out from the start. Everyone's got a job. Every team's got a role to play. And I think there's – am I right in saying there's perhaps a little bit less time for the riders from different teams to actually just have that banter and chat, you know, as we did back in the day? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th I think the racing – oh, what? actually, I got sent a photo uh, this morning uh, from Matt Wilson. Uh, the 12 uh, – when we had 12 uh, Australians at the Giro – and uh, it was a photo that came up today on his uh, on his uh, cloud there, and he sent it through. And uh, you know, twelve of us hanging out in the start area at the Giro d'Italia. Uh, I think still to this day, I think it's a record Australians at the Giro. We 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 have plenty of time at the start to chat, and even in the race, you know, the Giro's like you know, once the break had gone, things would settle down. You could have a couple of hours to have a chit chat down the back. And racing uh, has certainly changed, and it's uh, it's a lot more stressful for these guys. And I think because of the information. That that people have got about how the stages. You know, we, no one recon stages of the Giro twenty years ago. The locals might have had that knowledge, but no one else did. And uh, but I think uh, just the whole stress uh, level in races has been amplified year in year out. And uh, you know these guys don't get too much of a chance to catch up with uh, even their teammates, let alone uh, other friends from other teams during the races these days. Well, I was just going to hit, hit you now with uh, get your. Uh, um 
thoughts on that great stage finish of Caleb's yesterday. And I was going to say, I thought it was a bit like a, it looked to me like a Robbie McEwen type sprint. But talking of the man, we've got Robbie McEwen uh, uh, in a, and here he is. So, g'day, Robbie. Caught out, caught out looking at my phone. <laughs> I was actually just, I was listening in and I was just uh, looking for that photo that Whitey was uh, mentioning a moment ago. I was, I was looking at uh, Trent Wilson's Facebook because I know it's just there somewhere. But it was like Whitey and Cookie and Maddie and Brad and me and Gatesy. Uh, who else Hank, was there? Bert. Hank. Yeah, Drake was there. Bert, uh, Brett Lancaster. Uh, Bre- oh, no, Brownie. Yep. Yeah, Brownie was there somewhere. The, la- the, la- the, la- the, la- the lateral rat, R- Russell Van Hout. Yeah, yeah, Russell Van Hout. Yeah. Yeah, Russ was there, and, uh, and I was there with Langy. Langy and I were there following you guys around too. Yep, yeah, you probably had a number hero. pinned on too. You too. <laughs> great time. Uh, so <laughs> the, 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 the the Giro is certainly not uh, the certainly Giro, the Giro is not uh, as fun as it used to be. That's for sure. <laughs> I remember when I rode it in '81. I happened to be the only Aussie there. Oh, there here was, we go. You got twenty minutes, everyone. There was there was one <laughs> one American. Um, I can't even think of his name at the moment. We'll come to him in a minute. Uh, and that was it. We were the only English speaking guys in the uh, in the whole Giro. So he wouldn't uh, have understood you. Oh well, he uh, had trouble. He must have left, left a lasting impression on you, mate. You can't even remember his name. <laughs> George Mill. Well, John, 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 in in my first Giro in '98, the only person who spoke English in that whole bunch was Marcel Wood, <laughs> and, uh, so things uh, things have changed pretty quickly from in those early 2000s with the arrival of all Australian professionals coming to us. But you know, back in the early in the late '90s, early 2000s, before. Before the Giro was a world tour event, not many of us, not many of Australians went to the Giro. It's only really when when it turned into a world tour event, it became a lot more international. And you know, Robbie spent you know, seven or eight years there winning stages at the Giro. But before then, uh, you didn't have to go. Teams didn't have to go to the Giro. No. So, Robbie, I know we haven't got you for that long, and we really, before we lose you, we want to dissect uh, that uh, great sprint yesterday because I flippantly said it reminded me uh, very Robbie McEwen-ish, his ride. But it was a a great uh, sprint from Caleb. I'd like to get your um, analysis of that uh, final couple of K. Yeah, well, before the, the sprint itself, what I really like to see, and, you know, I was... I was on the edge of sending Caleb a message, and I thought, no, no, just leave him in peace. But my thought was, after what we saw in the first bunch sprint, where Caleb just was way too far back, and they just didn't recover from it, and you know, just scraped in the top ten. My thought, if I was going to send a message, I was going to say, ride it like a bay crip. You know, you just some of these finishes in the Giro when they come into these towns with just you know a dozen corners in the last three k. You've got to ride it like a criterium and just ride it at the front. And when I then saw the footage, I was like, you beauty, he's riding it like a criterium. He used Jasper to burst his, his last lead out, man. He was using him already, you know, more than 2K, 2K to go, 3K to go to just keep position through the corners and stay right at the front and sort of just wait for the others to, to go when they did. And, but he managed to slot his way in when it really counted and then get himself out in, in the sprint itself. But that 
that thought of, um, you know, dominate the front of the bunch, keep your position. If you're in front, you, you can choose what you do. If you get caught too far behind, no, you, there's no choices. You've just got to try and smash your way forwards and it doesn't always work. So that, I thought that was a, a really good way to ride it and I was, I was pleased to see them do that. When it came to the sprint itself, you know, Caleb just tracked Viviani because they did a really good lead out on uh, stage two, the first bunch sprint with Consoni, who has really come into, I, I think he's found his, his role as a lead out man with Viviani. He used to do stuff like ride his own sprint while Viviani was the other side of the road. He's been doing a really good job and Caleb recognised that. He tracked Viviani and then, you know, once he saw Nitzola coming on from the left and who made a really long sprint and a really good sprint, you know, Caleb just waited till he was clear, slid in behind the wheels and then just blasted on past me. I mean, intrinsically, he's way faster than Nitzolo and, and Viviani and he just had to, you know, get it right to get through the gap and he did exactly that. What about uh, the clash uh, he had with uh, uh, Tim Melia? Um, uh, okay, I'll give you a pronunciation lesson. Lesson. It's for everybody there. It's Tim Merlier. It's like the ear on the side of your head, Merlier, because he's Flemish. He's not French. He's not Merlier. He's Tim. You told Merlier. me that earlier today, and I've forgotten it already. Is that how good I am? <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, um, it was interesting. That was a, hit pretty yeah. hard. Yeah, it was a really important moment because, you know, Sagan was on the left, Caleb on the right, and Merlier, he he got in between them. And the mistake he made was basically stopping in the gap and not getting himself all the way through it because he made an acceleration and he got himself in front of Caleb. And as Sagan just moved into the right, Merlier wasn't far enough in front of Caleb to make it stick. So he, he rode himself really well into the gap but never really went through it. He sort of he got to the to the point of almost to the point of no return, but he got returned. Yeah. And uh, you know, Caleb Caleb bumped off him. Caleb still had a few centimeters on his right hand side to play with, um, you know. But he bumped past him pretty well. And unfortunately for Merlier, he you know pulled his foot, dropped his chain, and you know didn't have a chance anymore. But um, I've been really impressed with him, and I expected him to do really well in the Giro too after watching him over the last couple of years. I'm, I'm interested to see um, Tim and Caleb actually, you know, head-to-head drag race to see, um, you know, like obviously they've both had different wins now but from different situations and they've be, both been ruled out of it for different reasons. So it would be really good to see those guys just going head-to-head in one of these next sprint stages, although there, there are not too many um, in the Giro. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that, though. Yeah, won't be many left, uh, typical of the Giro. They have a few in the first week. Then you've got to survive a few mountain days and get another couple. But probably... I don't know, what is it, 10, 10 or 11 days, and then pretty much the sprints are done. You've got to really hang in for a long, long time to get one more. But it'd be good to see them re- yeah, really go head-to-head. I, I still think you know, Caleb is faster. I think the only guy in the peloton uh, who is a match for Caleb when it comes to pure sprint speed is Dylan Grunewagen. I mean, there's so much more that goes on than just pure sprint speed, of course, but uh, he's the only one. You know, They're the two true out-and-out out sprinters. Um, but Merley is good. He, he dares to go early. He's really strong, and he can, he can hold his top end for a long time. And um, now he'll be a, he'll be, he's here to stay for a while, Merley. He's, he's good. I think they've got three uh, sprints between now and, uh, and stage 14. So stage 13, I think, is the last 
chance for, for, for Caleb. I reckon he'll go after that because then they've got a block of mountains. So I reckon he'll just stay till stage 13. I think we get three three goes. And I look forward, like you're saying, to, to watch him and Tim Merlier. Hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, going head to head because, uh, yeah, they are two, the two quickest blokes here. But um, what about that last 20K? That was really, uh, I mean, a bit like uh, Amstel Gold. There's road furniture everywhere, you know. Yeah, and, uh, when you come dangerous. into these, um, you know, particularly in the seaside towns in, in Italy, they're, you know, they're not built for fast traffic flow and they're certainly not built for bike races. And uh, it was really sad to see Dombrovsky and, uh, and Mikhail Landa go down, actually didn't even hit the traffic island or the traffic signal. They hit the, the, the marshal who was standing in front of it. Um, I don't know who hit him first and exactly how it happened. I haven't seen enough footage of it, but um, sad to see those two out of the race. We know that um, you know, Landa broke his collarbone and a few ribs and Dombrowski's been ruled out, uh, as we, we know the term here in Australia, with an HIA, um, and he didn't pass the, the concussion protocol uh, this morning, so he won't be starting today, which is uh, sad okay. for him. But at least he's got a stage win in the bag. Yeah. It's extraordinary, yeah, so isn't it? That, that John, yeah. Sorry, Johnny. Um, yeah, that right. stage win, because it was his first win in Europe, I think since 2012, Baby Giro. He won the Baby Giro, which, you know, yeah. okay, this guy's next American superstar on the way. In the mountain, the, one of the mountain stages he won in that race to take the win, he beat Fabio Aru, who obviously he's sort of come and then gone again, and maybe he'll come back again. But you would have picked um, Dombrowski back then to be the man that would have done better than, than Aru, and it hasn't been the case. It's taken him a long mm. time. So you've got a feel for a guy. It's awesome that he can come away with a big win like that. And how disappointing to, uh, to then be out, you know, a, a day later. Yeah, disappointing to be out, but uh, it'll certainly temper the disappointment that he's got his stage win. Um, you, know, you can imagine if it had another setback and not not get that stage win already. But yeah, it just shows you how hard it is in the in the world tour to to come out of the under twenty threes or your superstar and make it happen in the world tour. And you know, basically, he's, he's been in all the biggest races, and um, you know, you get opportunities. But you're up against the absolute best in the world, really mature and experienced athletes. Um, but it's great to see him get that win out of the break, and you know, hopefully. Everything goes well for him. We'll see him back really quickly. I saw someone up, popped up on uh, uh, on Facebook or somewhere today that uh, not only is it his first win outside of America in about uh, five years, it's his first win outside Utah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, well, in future, watch out for him when uh, races are at altitude. He obviously performs well at, at altitude because uh, that tour of Utah is all, all above 2,000 metres. There's a question now, um, for you, There's a good question there for you, Robbie, from uh, Peter Marley. Oh. Has uh, Caleb's style changed in the sprint? Does he, he doesn't look as low over the bars as he used to be. Well seen, Peter Varley, because, yes, that is the case. He, um, I was talking to Caleb, uh, I think, just in the, the summer, just gone, or no, the one before, the one before, actually, when he was uh, back home in Australia the last time. And he said he'd been working on his sprint position and doing some wind tunnel testing and trying to find a, the, the ideal position where he could generate maximum power and maximum aerodynamic position. And he found that rather than having his nose rubbing on the front tyre like we'd become used to seeing from Caleb, that if he got himself a little more upright, he could generate more watts, he was less aero, 
but the gain in power outweighed the loss in aero. So it's about he was tinkering with what is the ideal between you know getting low and yeah. and generating more power. And so he's come up with this very slightly more upright position, and it's working great for him. And what I've also noticed watching him sprint compared to say sprints watching him two three years ago, his back wheel skips around a lot less now. Because you used to see him any little tiny bump in the road, his back wheel was off the ground; it was skipping sideways. So he's eliminated that from from his sprint, and uh, yes, he is definitely in a more upright position. Um, interesting that question coming from Peter Farley. I don't know if you know him, Robbie. He's from Bryce, and only about oh, a month, month and a half ago, he we left Bryce and went on what he called a Criterium tour for a few weeks. That's why he's probably so interested in hearing about Caleb's sprint. Not that, that Pete himself is a fast sprinter, but he went down to Melbourne and just raced every day a different criterion for a different club, ended up going up to Aubrey Wodonga and all around Victoria and just doing as many crits as he could in a couple of weeks. He did his own kind of Bay Crits series, John, <laughs> um, but just going to club crits over a couple of weeks. So uh, good on you, Peter. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I, might, uh, I might even line up in one, you never know, towards the end of May. I'm going to be in Melbourne for the commentary of the Giro on SBS. I was looking for gravel or mountain bike events. There aren't any in Melbourne. There's, you know, there's one in Albury. There's one at Yakandanda. That's a bit far away. Um, you know, Johnny, unless uh, Jerry wants to take me out in the chopper, then, uh, you know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we'll work on it. We, we might, so might um, we have a, a Legends Bay Crit. We'll put on a Legends Bay Crit with you and Macca and uh, Macca won one and uh, Scotty. I don't, I don't want to race against that. Macca. Macca's too fit. <laughs> <laughs> Macca does nothing but ride his bike. But uh, just talking about t t today's stage, it is a bit of a monster. We've got uh, um, Cat 2 and a Cat 3 right in the middle of the stage. So it's 160K. I've got the little, the little legend here. Yeah, it's, the final climb, 16K. 16K, um, yeah. So it's just, just under. It's, uh, you know, just under 16K long. But um, I actually think, that, I mean, the name so rings a bell to me i think i've ridden up it but you know being the giro and a mountaintop finish i don't concentrate that much on those ones well uh, robbie did you ride well, i think the giro, i've ridden it did you ride it in 2002 yes then you had, did race up it that's the last but, time they raced up there. what's what stage was it on uh it was stage 13 it was oh no i was gone oh you were gone already gone back i was already out of that one so maybe i haven't ridden it i just i right. recognize the name yeah, well, so that, that particular, that was the last time, it was 2002. It was won by um, Julio Cuapio, who rode for Panaria. Oh, Cuapio, the Mexican, yeah. Yeah, and the second in the stage was in his first full professional season riding for Mape, Cadell Evans. And uh -huh. three days later, took the pink jersey. The next day, lost it again. So, uh, yeah, a bit of Aussie, Aussie connection to, uh, yeah. to the climb up San Giacomo. So why, why uh, I mean, is it in brackets? Why are they called San Giacomo in brackets? Uh, well, because there's no town up there, so it's it's sort of really part of uh, Ascoli Piceno, and oh, okay. it's the climb above the town, which is, you know, there'll be something up there but no town as such. Uh, there might okay. be what they call a sanctuario, like a an old monastery or something like that. Yeah. It might just be a hill with just absolutely nothing up there, but something that provides a really good finale for a Giro stage. Well, it's going to be, be a, uh, it, 
Definitely the GC boys will be out to play, but it's not like it's a category two, so it's obviously not quite as steep uh, as a couple of days ago. So, uh, yeah, it'll be one of those 16 K climbs. <laughs> <laughs> the last 5K is um, 7.6% in gradient, yeah, so. so it's going to do some real damage. It'll do, I yeah. mean, okay, it's only uh, in terms of mountain stages, it's not really brutal, but it'll it'll certainly cause some gaps and we already saw the other day in the rain maybe the rain had a bit to do with it as well um some guys don't like the cold and rain but you know even that short climb to the finish that already split them up a bit and guys losing 11 and 20 and 30 seconds so we've got an interesting thing on the on the on the GC now. I was just looking at it before we've got the uh, you know Demarchi uh, still leading, and then we've got some names we don't hear a lot of. Uh, uh, Luis Vavaca, uh, he's second uh, at forty two seconds. Uh, Nelson Oliveira, the, the Portuguese from Movie Star, we know a bit about him. Uh, Attila Volta from Hungary. What do you know yeah. about him, FDJ? Uh, I just know he's from Hungary. That's it. Uh, he's <laughs> like, like, yeah, like like a lot of others. I just don't know anything about him. But um, I do know out of those guys that they were all in the break, and you yeah. know the break survived by a minute. And you know yeah. after the the opening time trial of nine k, they all weren't that far behind. So they've all moved into the top spots in GC. But expect to see that really shaken up. And I think that the names at the top of the standings after tonight's stage will. Will be the likes of uh, Bernal, uh, Vlasov, Evenepoel, um, you know, the, the real favourites yeah. for this Giro will, will start to already stick out after tonight. Yeah, you see oh, them yes. all there. There's not much between yes. them, is there? I mean, you look at them, you've got uh, Vlasov, you've got uh, uh, Evenepoel, only four seconds behind him, uh, Hugh Carthy, uh, another, like, I think, 10 seconds back, Bernal, one second back from him, uh, Yatesy. 10 seconds back. So they're, they're all pretty close. And, and still, Jai Hindley, he's not completely out of it. Not a great day the other day, but he's still you know, only like 30, 40 seconds down on, on Bernal. So he's still not too bad. No, he's still right in it. And that's the beauty of the Giro as well. You, you often see early on, and every year, time after time, people start to already call it in the first week and say, oh, this, this is going to be your podium and these are your this is the guy who's going to win it. He's flying. Look at him go. And they get into that last four days of the Giro and they just fall apart. And, you know, somebody can still come from the clouds who's a couple of minutes down. You often see such massive time gaps in the, the mountain stages over that last sort of five days or so. So, um, you know, Jai Hindley, hopefully for him, he's coming in not, I wouldn't say underdone, but not at absolute 100% that the only way is down. And, uh, you know, there's such a long way to go. And Nick Schultz is going pretty well too. He's only, uh, like, I think 10 seconds behind uh, Jai. And he's, uh, even though he's there uh, to support Simon Yates, he's still uh, uh, looking quite strong. He's looking very strong, which is a good thing. Um, but, I, I, you know, like you just mentioned, Yates, I think he's he's there to ride for Yates. And as time goes on and he, he has to do some work then, and we get into the really highest mountains, then I, I think... That'll sort of find him out, and he'll help just you know do his role to the best of his ability, which is really good. Yeah. So you've seen a few uh, Giro's, and you've ridden a few, uh, uh, Robbie. You've won like thirteen stages in the Giro. No, um, only twelve. Only twelve. Only twelve. Oh, I never exaggerate. Um, <laughs> but 
and but who have seen quite a few. I reckon this is the toughest one uh, that I've seen. The actual the final two weeks of this is just brutal. That's what they say every year. This is the hardest one there's ever been, especially the people who are in the race. They like to say this is the hardest one there's ever been. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's like they've just invented new roads. They've grown some new mountains. Uh, it's always hard. It is always hard. They've, I mean, I've seen some some whoppers, but that's, that's the nature of the race. And, uh, you know, they just try to make it as hard as they possibly can because the the attractiveness to the spectator is the the drama of guys blowing up and looking like they're almost going to win and then falling apart. Okay, here's one for you, Robbie. Free Ranger, is there a different feel, a different atmosphere riding the Giro compared to the Tour? It's a little more relaxed uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, one is the the crowds from start to finish aren't as, uh, as big or intense as the Tour. Don't get me wrong, the Italians are really passionate about it, but it's not... It's not a summer holiday race where the the entire European Union uh, makes their way to the race because it just doesn't fall in the right time of year. So it's a little more understated, a little bit more relaxed around the starts and finishes. Depending on where you are, when you're right down in the south of Italy, it is like a mecca. It is, it's unbelievable. The crowd's down there and they just go absolutely wild. Um, but you'll sort of see those big crowds really in the, the big mountains. And we'll, we'll see what it's going to be like this year. We, you know, with the, the COVID pandemic and everything, I'm not sure um, you know, really how many people they're going to let up the mountains and be around the finishes. But in, in general, it is more relaxed than the Tour de France. There's, there's something that around the race is not as intense, although the racing is equally as intense. The um, uh, Johnny the, and Robbie, you, you as a rider, you're seeing it from inside the peloton. I know when um, Dan Jones and I actually went over and worked on the tour and then the Giro, the Giro was far better to actually work on. It was much less stressful. They weren't as strict with protocols and parking and all that kind of stuff. You know that as well, Johnny, from, from the years. Um, I asked Adam Hanson. When Adam Hanson Johnny going, thinks that about every race. They don't, he said, no, they don't worry about protocol, parking and access. Oh, that's not anywhere. It doesn't matter to John. <laughs> Yeah, no, they this, do. Uh, this is you. Don't. Pots and kettles, Robbie McEwen. Pots and kettles, mate. <laughs> At least I've got a sticker on my car. <laughs> uh, no, I, when when uh, Adam Hansen was doing his, you know, crazy stint of, you know, all, all Grand Tours back to back to back to back, you know, 20 of them or whatever it was, um, straight, I asked him which one he he enjoyed most, which one did he prefer the most, and he, was, he didn't really want to answer because he thought he'd upset someone. I said, well, okay, we'll put it to you another way. I said, how about... What are they like? If they were people, what would, what would their personalities be? He said, oh, okay. And like straight off the spot, he said, okay, the Tour de France is a businessman. The Giro is a passionate sports fan. And the Vuelta is a sports fan, but at the end of the year on holidays. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know what? You summed it up perfectly. That's, yeah. that's the feel of those three races. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. The, the, the Vuelta is somewhat on long service leave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think we got another fan question coming up here, but uh, here it is. Yep, not going to give up on George Bennett. Uh, I, I, not really a question, more of a statement. But I, I like your thinking, Sheila. That's it's good. You're not giving up on George, and we're not giving up on him. And you know, hopefully, with 
the weather conditions. Hopefully today they have some nicer weather. You know, George, he's not the most solidly built bloke in the peloton, even though a few years ago he sunny built someone on the way um, up a mountainside in the Tour de France. But, um, you know, I, I think the warmer weather is a bit better for George and hopefully uh, the sun brings out the best in him. Yeah, look, we'll he's, he's, I was just looking at him. He's three three minutes ten down, and look, he had a really bad day, no doubt about that. But if his form's good, and he comes right, as you say, <laughs> the long way to go, and the last week of this uh, 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 race, there's some monster mountains which will suit George. And if he stays around about that time down, he could move from where is he now, thirtieth, uh, into the top ten or even in the top half dozen. Yeah, well, we'll find out pretty soon if he, you know, what he's sort of tactical plan is for this Giro uh, if he's really going to try and persist and try and ride GC or just go you know what if it's not my day I'll lose some time I'll infiltrate a breakaway on a mountain day and go for a stage win yeah. Yeah. Hey, not, not, yeah. not at the Giro Robbie but good to get your take on it um, I don't know if you saw that uh, Nasser Buhani has been given a two month suspension from an infringement that he did in back in March and uh, was it Shallow Pay de Loire Oh, yeah, yeah, um, surely, yeah. Yeah, put um, Jake Stewart into the barriers and he fractured his hand hitting the barriers yeah. at speed. And then they've uh, retroactively given him a suspension from the 5th of, oh, sorry, from the 8th of April that'll end on the 7th of June. So they're starting with the Grunewagen um, suspension. Now, Buhani, uh, the UCI is starting to crack down a little bit. It's been a long time, really, if you go back that, you know, riders were getting suspensions. I know in Australia, they were at least dish them out a long time ago, but. Yeah. Um, Actual, you know, suspension for infringements. It doesn't happen that much. UCI cramp, cramping down on it now. Yeah, and it's not entirely a bad thing. I, I think if it, if there's, you know, the precedent's been set with the Kurunuig and Jakobsen incident in Tour of Poland last year, and if if you are responsible, you've if you've done the wrong thing, if it's a disqualifiable offence, and you've done the wrong thing, and you injure someone, then I guess. Yeah, you should have a, a a timeout that's equal to the amount of time it's going to take the injured rider to come back, yeah, and that's pretty much up. matched up with uh, with Jakobsen and Grunewagen. Jakobsen made his comeback in the Tour of Turkey, and you know Grunewagen two weeks later is is that's when his ban was due to expire. So that pretty much matched up, and yeah, probably not a bad thing. It's a really blatant infringement. And Buani, you know, well, you know, he's got his reputation against him as well. Yeah. He's been copying a fair bit of slack on social media, evidently, and some of it a bit racist and, and not, not right. But just going back to Grolovagan, interested to hear your take on this because there's no doubt that he deserved to be disqualified and to get a holiday. I thought nine months was too much because it, when you talk about how bad the injuries were to Jacobson and they were life-threatening, they weren't all... Uh, Gronovagan's fault. That was the race organisers for a whole stack of reasons. One, downhill finish like that. And two, having the, the barricade set up that enabled him to go through a gap and hit the damn, the damn finish line structure. So hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that, mate? Yeah, well, the organisers were in a big way responsible as well as the UCI because they, they even if they say they have safety protocols, they don't enforce them, they don't check them, they just say, oh, yeah, we've got them and think that that'll do. And it doesn't do. So, you know, there were the other parties at fault uh, in the incident. So, yeah, at, at the time I, I did think, geez, nine months, that is, that's massive. That is really long. Um, 
I would agree with there had to be some amount of time uh, to be served as a band by Kroonewagen, but, yeah, nine, nine months was a long time. Uh, I thought maybe six, I already would have thought, geez, that's long, and it yeah. would have been sufficient. Yeah, we're putting him into this season. Even anyway, if people say, oh, yeah, but it's over three months in the winter with no racing, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so um, you're coming down to Melbourne. Uh, so when do you start on SPS, Robbie? Stage 14. Okay, for the final week. Yep. So I'll be in the studio with, with Kino. It's from the uh, the second last weekend, from the Saturday through to the following Sunday week. Uh, okay. Sounds great, mate. Look, We're looking forward to getting, uh, getting in there and watching all the race at the moment. I'm, I'm To be honest, I'm watching highlights because I can't stay up all night. I have, to, <laughs> I have to stick to my bedtime when I'm here at home. I did it last night, mate. I did it last night. It was so late. I was cooked this morning when I had to get up. (laughs) Another question before you go, Robbie. uh, Peter Varley, what are your thoughts on the Moto guys standing in front of the traffic island with a flag and a whistle? Crazy? No, not not crazy. It's it's the way it's been done. Uh, They do it like that in the Tour de France because if you are suddenly there and it's, you know, the traffic island normally sticks out in, in front of uh, whatever type of signage they have on the traffic island itself. So it's good to have someone in front of that warning that it's, it's already here and start to you know, split. It's just a really unfortunate incident where you know, someone maybe wasn't paying attention or changed their line or got interfered with and couldn't avoid it anymore. But it's, it's the done thing. You've got to have them in front of the traffic island. Um, they can't stand there and hide behind the sign. But maybe, yeah, I think there's probably a better way to do it as well um, with without putting a person there that endangers that person because that guy is probably out of the Giro as well. Yeah, well, I was just thinking, you know, what do they when they line up all of the marshals to give them their jobs, is it the short straw that gets that job standing in front of me? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon it would maybe be. There's a, maybe there's danger money. Maybe they say, like, who wants the extra 100? Anyone? Extra 100? Anyone? I mean... I've been watching, as you say, it's been happening for a long while. The Tour de France, they do it really well. And a lot of the classics do. After a goal, they do it and, and they need to. This is around about every 200 metres. Yeah, it's definitely the bum job. <laughs> it's the bum job. But I've, I've been there, I've been standing on the side of the road watching them and you see the guy, he gets all nervous. It's like a, a stage finish coming up as the rider starts and he starts shaking and he's waving that flag <laughs> and blowing that whistle. And I tell you what, he gets a volume out of that whistle. <laughs> Hey, well, hey, in terms of crashes, mate, there were, there were maybe three, four guys went down, three of them couldn't continue. So Lander um, Bidard from Adidouer, Citroën, and um, and also Dombrowski. So, you know, two broken collarbones, a bunch of ribs as well with uh, with Lander, and then Dombrowski with um, concussion. So three guys from the one crash can't, can't continue. So that was a shocker. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Pavel, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sibikov, yeah, as well. He was earlier. He was about 9K to go or, or something 16. like that. 16. Yeah, 16K. And he just, yeah, as he as he did, uh, you saw him last year in the Tour de France, we had three crashes on stage one around Nice in the Tour last year. Now, he crashed yesterday. He was just, he was really unlucky. He got, got squeezed, hit the gutter and, you know, went down. But he broke his collarbone, jumped back on, rode right, through to the finish, another 16K before saying, shoulder's a bit sore, yeah. collarbone snapped in half. 
Yeah. He's tough. He's tough. Yeah, he's, he's, tough. he's had a rotten run of luck, so uh, he's due for something good. <laughs> I remember following Stewie one year in the tour when he fell and rode 80K with a broken collarbone. And I, I said to him after, I said, why did you keep going? He said, oh, I wasn't sure it was broken. I'm driving behind a car. I can see him yeah. broken his shoulder where they can ride down. But he, he, he wanted to be sure. So anyway, some of these tough nuts. <laughs> just, just hanging on to a bit of hope, mate. Maybe. Maybe yeah, he'll exactly. stop before the finish. Yeah. Yeah. Righto, guys. Yeah, Robbie, thanks heaps, mate. Uh, Matt, really appreciate uh, you coming on board, bud. Uh, tw- sorry I buggered it up. Only 12 stages in the, in the Giro. And 12 well, stages I, the I, I thought maybe you were giving me that extra one I once got disqualified for and they, they rubbed me out and uh, Fabio Baldato got it. I, I changed my line very, just ever so slightly. Yes. Yeah. Just I remember that. that. I remember that. that. <laughs> no, but then again, that, that counteracts with the one you could have let uh, um, Hank Vogels win when he was up, just jumped up the road with your colony. You know, I was, thinking about, I was thinking about that today, actually. I was thinking about that one today. As I was, it's funny it came into my mind today. So he was up the road, but you know who let him go through the corners? Yeah. Yeah. Me. So, but what happened was, um, I, you I changed your mind. So, no, no, no. I, I mean, when it comes to it, you think mm, we're going to catch him. I came out of Kirsipu's wheel. You got to, you got to ride your sprint. But when he was away, I thought, how unfortunate. It was Brett Lancaster who closed the gap, but he was riding for Brownie. So it was an Aussie off the front being chased by another Aussie, working for another Aussie, and it came down to it and. You know, I thought Kirstipu was going to roll him as well. I think Hank ended up fifth or sixth, so we, we caught him. But you've got to ride your sprint because the worst thing you can do or the stupidest-looking thing you do is think, I'm just going to feather it, I'm going to hold back, i hold back, and you get rolled. Your teammate doesn't win, you don't win, and someone else has gone, lucky day. Yeah. Always ride it. Young riders out there, always ride a full sprint no matter what. Don't try and get clever or cute. Exactly. I remember that stage well because we found a fantastic wine bar that night, one of the best in Italy. But there you go, another story. Can't have been that good because you remember it. Yeah, no, I remember it because I lost, I lost my credit card that night. But anyway, we oh, got, got to back. narrow it down a bit like, more. You like got to you narrow know. it down more than that. <laughs> anyway, Robbie, right, thanks boys. heaps, mate, and uh, enjoy the uh, uh, the Gold Coast for another week before you come down to uh, beautiful, warm Melbourne. No worries, I'll bring some sun. Okay, mate. See you, bud. You certainly need it, that's for sure. I wonder if, if that movement he put on Baldato was much as Bettini put on Cookie that time when, he, when Cookie went straight into the barriers. Oh, geez, I was there that day too. Another one well, I happened to witness. And another, that great, really... another great wine bar that night, mate. It was, yeah. Ronnie Reed was on uh, on that trip, and he's he's the uh, the, the the great uh, wine bar finder. But um, mm. yeah, no, that was that was a real bad one. I mean, that definitely cost uh, um, um, the cookie the, the stage win. He was flying flying home. But uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Hey, um, tech, bit of tech talk. Slight bit of tech talk. This may bore most people, but um, yeah, whether it's interesting or not. Boring. Just... Um, (laughs) (laughs) Caleb uh, um, just a little thing when I saw today that Caleb's not riding the latest group set on his bike so Camp Ignolo's on the the Ridley bikes for Lotto, they're running 12 speed which everybody wants more gears, more cogs, it's great but the new group set 
12 speed camp bag doesn't have a 27 cog which he really wants so he's running the old superseded um, 11 speed just so he can get his 27 cog yeah, you'd think he'd be worrying about the 11 or even a 10 cog, but he's yeah. worrying about the other end, the 27, because he doesn't hurt the legs too much. Now, what we we're just I want to talk about a couple of other things, but um, we'll get on to our, our great uh, partners uh, in Bike Exchange, and we'll just hear a word from them. Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. <clears throat> it's a bike. 374 people are looking at this guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is. People that are looking for a bike. Or just a piece of it. Amateurs, semi-amateurs, and pro-amateurs. This guy wants this bike, but with this crank and these bars. This could be the perfect match. But not this one. This girl has a bike to sell, and thousands of people might purchase it. Eyes on Bikes help grow small businesses. His, hers, yours, and the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving. We are the world's number one bike marketplace, with over 500,000 products and 900 brands, where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns, and rides. Great ad, great company. Now, for all of the, especially Victorian uh, uh, listeners and viewers, uh, Saturday is the big uh, bike exchange uh, green edge uh, sale. I think there might even be a little logo that uh, Dan, if he's on the money, can put up in a second. But um, it's on Saturday at the bike exchange uh, uh, head office in, uh, there we go, outlet team issue sale. Well done, Daniel. Um, And it's in uh, Buckhurst Street, South Melbourne. 10 o'clock, I'm pretty sure it starts, uh, goes through till two. Uh, but there's some wonderful uh, um, um, bike frames on, on sale. A lot of the, the Scott frames that were part of the team over the last few years. So they're brand new frames, but some of them five or six years old. So fantastic deals. Uh, we've sold quite a few, but there's still a few more to go in all sizes. Plus there's Scott running shoes, got sunglasses, those Syncross uh, handlebars and stems and those brilliant Syncross, uh, Syncross, Syncross um, integrated handlebar stem pieces worth about $800 normally. I think they're going for $200. I mean, it's a wonderful deal. So get down there uh, on, on Saturday. It's a clear out, mate. Stock tape. It is. Great. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Hey, um, I mentioned uh, the climb tonight, San Giacomo, and then the connection back to Cadell Evans, right, where he finished second on that stage in 2002. But I like to connect the dots, okay? And the stage winner was Cuapio, Mexican, riding for the Panaria team. Now, Brett Lancaster, 2004 Olympic Games gold medalist in the team pursuit, he went to Panaria the year after that, 2003, and then two years later, of course, won the prologue at the Giro d'Italia, riding for Panaria and put on the, the uh, Malia Rosa. There's another little Aussie connection through tonight's stage winner from 2002, the last time we went to San Giacomo. Ah, doing a great job. Tonight. I hear you have a pick of Caleb's old man, Scotty. Now, there you are. Um, that is can true. we see it, mate? This is amazing. So, Mark, Mark there. Jeez. <laughs> which, 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 which one's there on the left or the right? 
No, no, no. So no, come on, come on. Look at that beautiful bowl haircut of mine on on the right hand side there. Yeah, so that's geez, that's Mark. Um, yeah. And yeah, wow. Look at oh god. My mother is responsible for that hairstyle. She used to cut my hair back then. Um, and you know, obviously, you know, the six six uh, kids in our family. She cut most of our hair, um, and that's how it looked. I, I don't know if that was in fashion or not. I, don't, I doubt it. Now, Mark's an interesting one. Okay, so Mark Ewan, who was an Australian junior team time trial champion in uh, the under, I think it was the under nineteen level, um, and then he went into the army. And I used Mark as a bit of an example for years. So he disappeared. He went into the army, disappeared from cycling. And didn't see him again for, for many, many years until Caleb, you know, came along. And I used to use Mark as an example because you can see he's a little guy, you know, like like his son. And coming through the under 17, under 15, under 17 levels, he would, you know, I was I was a pretty mature young kid, right? So pretty big and, and I'd win the sprints on the road on the road races. Then we went into the under 17s and he would attack on the climbs. I'd go with him, we'd get over the top, and then I'd beat him in the sprint. And then when he went into the under-19s, the climbs were longer. He was more mature, still only a little guy. He, had, he would attack on the climbs, and I'd struggle to go with him and then beat him in the sprint. And I remember thinking, you know, years later, that if Mark Ewan kept riding bikes, he would have grown into, you know, into the sport, and he was the sort of guy that would have, you know, attacked on climbs and just ridden away, and there was no staying with him. You know, he, was, he really had some ability. And it wasn't for years later that I went to the national championships on the track in Sydney. And this little guy um, came over to me and said, oh, hey, Scott, um, never met him before. I'd heard lots about Caleb. He'd been winning lots of races in, in New South Wales and et cetera and around Australia in the, the uh, age group categories. And this was under 19s at the nationals on the track. And he came over and said, oh, my dad said to say hello. I said, oh, who, who's your dad? He said, Mark. I said, Mark, 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 Mark Ewan. Mark Ewan. Oh, your dad's Mark Ewan. Oh, I, just, you know, I had no idea, right? Like, oh my God! Oh, please say hello. I haven't seen him for for so long, and I just didn't yeah. make that connection, you know. And and yeah, Caleb's yeah, yeah. mum's Korean. I didn't make the connection whatsoever. Um, yeah. And it was great to hear that you know that Mark um, you know had come back around into the sport through Caleb, and and it's no surprise to me that Caleb is is as good as he is because his father, had he continued in cycling, I think really would have been able to uh, to go places as well. Yeah, and no surprise, he's such a great young man because uh, his parents are absolutely gorgeous people. They used to come down to the Bay Crits each year uh, and uh, to, to watch him and uh, just the, the, the loveliest couple. Um, yeah, yeah. Former, former world junior champion in the Omnium as a first-year junior. Second year, decided that, no, he wanted to be a road rider, so went to the Road World Championships, didn't do any track at all even as a, as a you know, reigning world champion, finished second at the Under-19 World Road Championships. Um, and it was uh, Matthew Morick that, that won it that year, that rides for Bahrain now. And, um, and then he came back a couple of years later and actually rode national track championships and put in a pretty decent individual pursuit, actually. So he's the sort of guy, if you wanted to go back to the track and you know, maybe do the Madison or something at the next Olympics or something like that, I think Caleb could, uh, could certainly do that. Yeah, I don't think he's going back. I don't think he's going back. No, no, now, no too much money on the road, mate. <laughs> I, I also noticed that uh, in, in, on the, in the news today, uh, they announced from morning yesterday, getting sleep uh, deprived at the moment, but um, that the uh, women's Tour de France next year, and so ASR have announced that they're going to have a prop up women's Tour de France next year, starting 
on the final day of the men's race. So the men's race will finish in Paris, and that will be the, also the day one of the women's uh, Tour de France. Yeah, they've finally put some some thought into how they do this. And it's interesting with, with ASO, the, the Tour de France organisers, it's not the first time it's happened, of course, right? We know if you go back into the 80s, I think it was 1984 through to 1989, there was a fully-fledged women's Tour de France that went that ran in conjunction with the men's race. Um, and they, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. they, they went um, – Oh, they had races up to, I think they had length, you know, uh, distances of up to 1,600 kilometres in, in overall tour distances. Yeah. Australian Liz Heppel was third in the overall standings in the 1988 edition. But then after 89, then things changed. So from through the early 90s, they continued with a race that was kind of deemed as the Women's Tour de France, but it was of a different name. It wasn't ASO that were running it. They had another organisation running it. And over time, they actually had disputes with ASO because ASO um, actually hit them for copyright of the name and the title of the event. So it changed names several times and it was actually ASO that made it more difficult for them to even associate their race as a Tour de France because that was just for the men. Um, and they didn't didn't work with them at all through the 90s. It eventually oh. sort of went on. and yeah, ASO. ASO. Exactly. And it evolved into different races, different names. Eventually it got to, I think, 2009 was the last edition of what you, you kind of would call um, a women's Tour de France. But it was really only through the 80s where it was a fully-fledged race that was backed by the men's Tour de France organisation. So it's great that they've finally come around and, uh, and are doing something for women's sport. Biggest growing sector of cycling at the moment. Uh, the mountain biking away from road racing is probably bigger and e-bikes. But uh, there's so many opportunities with women cycling because, you know, they've been deprived for so long. So I think there's some really opportunities there and it's good that ASA are on board. Yeah, look, it's great to see that um, it's becoming so much more professional. There's been, I think, three teams now uh, are paying um, the same uh, um, minimum prize uh, uh, not prize money, uh, um, contract, contract money, to to the to to the women as to their men's teams. One being Bike Exchange, I think they were the second team to do it. So, which, which is absolutely brilliant, and that that will now filter through. That'll become mandatory very soon. Um, and it's the one thing ASO did come out and say that that they they're not going to try try and do parity with, with the prize money because the sport's got to grow. He said, look. It has to become profitable quickly. If it's not profitable, they won't be able to keep it going. So it's got to pay its own way. So it's got to, it's got to work into these things. Yeah, that'll be interesting. And, and just on, on the pay, you see Anna van der Breggen, you know, current world champion. You know, she won Flesh Alone again for the seventh time, you know, dominant rider within the sport. And she's quite happy to retire at the end of this year. Simply, and I'm sure she would like to keep going, you know, like... Um, Alejandro Valverde and, and these riders, they'd love to just keep going into their late 30s if they were getting paid enough. I think for Anna, who would be paid, you know, perhaps the most of anyone within the women's peloton, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but, um, you know, she'd be up there, obviously, but it's still not enough compared to what the men get. So for her to have a sustainable future, she needs to leave the sport to go and actually form, you know, the second part of her career and, you know, think about family and, and doing all those sorts of things. So... You know, we'd be able to keep more riders within the sport longer if they were getting paid a little bit more, as it is with with the guys. And 
your point though that ASO make about the commercialization of the women's side of the sport, you know, I think that's valid. You know, business is business, and and no one's going to yeah. bankrupt themselves just to give the ladies, you know, an opportunity um, beyond their means. So let's hope that that can happen for sure. Yes, Gary, you, uh, you just mentioned here back in 1987, Donna Ray Stolinski, the uh, uh, VIS uh, coach, and uh, um, she's got her own little business down in Geelong. Uh, matter of fact, set up in the right in the heart of the Geelong Criterium circuit because I often wave to her as I ride past on Tuesdays and Thursdays with my little group. But uh, yeah, she's a, she's a legend. And, yeah, she, uh, she and she yeah. would have raced that one with uh, with Liz Heppel the before yeah. Liz was on the podium. Uh, Donna Gould was another one from South Australia. Her father was old national coach of the national team. Um, yeah, so yeah, some they pioneers, definitely some pioneers from from back in the day. Now we'll wrap it up. We just uh, I want to get your selection for today's stage because it is a ripper of a stage. So, mm. um, who, well, what, it, what's what going to happen, it, mate? It won't be it won't be Lander. <laughs> so he was the most aggressive of the leaders. Uh, so Ciccone and Lander were the two that hit out on the last hilly stage. Um, and it is a real shame, actually, because, you know, if we look at that day, you had Hugh Carthy, Lander, Bernal and Ciccone were the four riders that, were that you know, jumped ahead yeah. of, of the rest of the favourites. Lander's out. So then it comes back to, you know, Ciccone not really as a, a, a true favourite for, to win overall, but hey, I mean, you may prove me wrong. It's hard to go past Bernal. Um, it really comes down to, I think, what they want to do. Do they want to take the lead? You know, there's several riders from the breakaway from the other day that will probably fall away, um, including DeMarkey. Um, I think they'll fall away if the pace really goes on on that final climb. Um, so really it comes down to, you know, do Ineos. They've lost a rider, remember, with Sivakov out. They're now one rider less. Do they want to take the lead so early? Um, so it may just come down to a bit of a tactical battle as yeah. they go up there. But I think Bernal from the other day, you know, shows that he's, I think he's the strongest of the rest. And uh, we'll be looking forward to see what Yatesy does, Simon Yates. I, I think Yatesy will, uh, will, will go, be very strong today. Uh, and I think I, I pick him to be the best of the GC riders, actually. But I don't think, I, I, I think a break will win today. I think a break will um, clear out. Like, no one will be really chasing that hard. They can get over. I mean, it's a pretty big climb, that Cat Two climb, the first one. But uh, mm. they can get themselves up over that. That they'll be they'll be home and hosed. Well, that's ten k, so, mate. That first that first climb is ten k's long, and you can see even yep. on the way there, there's those lumps on the way which are perfect as a launching pad to get a group up the road. And of course, at the moment, it's the Israel Startup Nation team that are leading with Demarki, so the pressure's on them to chase it down, not yeah. Ineos, etc. So yeah, it could be interesting. It could be, you know, stage win. They'll need a good little group. They need, they need at least you know ten, ten to a dozen guys get up the road, strongest mm. guys, and uh, they have big chance to stay away. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Be good to see, buddy. There you are, Alan Rankin. Will media coverage of women's cycling get better so sponsors get the exposure they want, need to make it profitable? Well, that's happening. I, I mean. The, the women's uh, all the major races are now televised. The, the the plan is for the women's Tour de France to be televised. Hopefully, uh, SBS can uh, can do the deal with uh, ASR and have that uh, on our TV screens as well. Um, I know that uh, the Giro, the women's Giro last year, um, didn't do. They were supposed to supply the television feed, didn't do it, and so 
they were uh, stripped of their um, world standing. And matter of fact, they've come back this year with the whole thing fully televised to to try and get that uh, the world ranking back. And that was on during the during the Tour de France. So they're competing with the world's largest mm. annual sporting event. Um, you know, yeah, there, there are things around scheduling and stuff like that. One of the things that John that I, I I've noticed over the years, and especially as a commentator, is that we have to just speak about the women's racing in a normal perspective and just normalise it. You know, there's so many discussions around, um, you know, you know, saying little things like, oh, actually, the women's race was really interesting today. So what? Actually, it was interesting, meaning that you're expecting it not to be. We'll just treat it like a race. You know, it's like women's tennis isn't the same as men's tennis. Women's football isn't the same as men's football. Just treat them both as what they are and commentate them for what they do and, and just normalise it. I think that's the first thing we need to do to, to let it grow on its own organically. Jeez, Scotty, you have grown. That's fantastic to hear coming from you, mate. That's wonderful. <laughs> and you're, but you're spot on, mate. You are, yeah. you are spot on. <laughs> Look, uh, that was Whitey just apologising. Uh, his phone... Uh, he cook, got cooked or something, and then he got called into a meeting. You've got sort of a bike race team to run, so I suppose. But it was great to have him on board, as always. So I'd like to thank everyone uh, for staying with us. Don't forget to uh, um, to register as a Detour viewer and watch it every YouTube.com, the Detour podcast. Sign on. Uh, it, it helps us uh, uh, get the numbers up and it's going fantastic we really appreciate uh, uh, your support um, best of luck Dan I hope uh, you're up and about for tomorrow night I don't think the uh, I don't think our great uh, viewing statistics will stay if Dan's out of the picture and it's just me hosting this damn thing but uh, Scotty thanks uh, again for coming on board you're, you're our uh, most regular uh, guest and uh, or irregular guest whichever one you most irregular with. regular guest yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to tonight's stage it's going to be a beauty and uh, we'll see you all tomorrow night cheers buddy this is the winning ride of the Tour de France, Benjamin Sonny.